so I'm, you know, very interested in producing different metrics, different kinds of economic arrangements, different laws, you know, that will support things like cooperatives, all the kinds of infrastructure in a way that has become part of one set of norms but uh, we, we, you know, we need to diversify the kind of infrastructure, social infrastructures, so that different kinds of framings of what is uh, can coexist and perhaps even start to replace some of the others that have been so damaging to, to our world. But there's a sense in which being something different involves practising it. But the idea that there has to be some content to the practice of collectivity that is joyful as, as well as effectual. Hello, and welcome back to the Musing Mind podcast. I'm Oshan Jarrow, and today I'm speaking with Katherine Gibson. Catherine is the co-author of a number of books with her collaborator, Julie Graham, including The End of Capitalism as We Know It, which was published actually back in 1996, well before talking about the end of capitalism was a cool or in-style thing to do. And more recently, uh, in 2006, they published Post-Capitalist Politics, which is how I came to find their writing, actually. And what struck me about their view was the way that they laced together questions of economic transformation with questions of self-transformation and subjectivity and consciousness. Uh, Very often talking about the role of self-transformation as a means for economic transformation winds up being reductive and is used as a, a technique to divert attention away from the structural or policy changes that must also play a part, you know, in any process of economic change. But Catherine and Julie's writing presents this idea of self-transformation in a way that is inclusive of structural and policy change, right? That sees the self as constituted as much by its environment as individual will and circumstance. And that kind of porous and broader conception of the self makes their perspective on on what post-capitalism is and how we can participate in it so unique and interesting. Biographically, Catherine is an economic geographer at Western Sydney University and established the Community Economies Collective, which is a project that involves both academics and communities in theorizing and practicing uh, new economic visions. In our conversation, we explore the relationship between self-transformation and economic transformation, how post-capitalism is not something that can be learned or intellectually understood so much as performed, acted out, and felt Uh, which suggests why new economies require new selves, right? New configurations of how we experience our bodies and relations. We explore how national scale policy like basic income can help support individuals in their own processes of exploration and transformation. Uh, Why self-entrepreneurship is the ultimate expression of neoliberal subjectivity and a bunch of other fun stuff. One note Um, I connected with Catherine while she was in her coastal caravan out in Western Sydney, which presented a few technological hurdles. Um, But rather than abandoning the conversation, I chose to see them as opportunities to experience the conversation a little differently. So the audio is not of the quality I would like, and perhaps not of podcasts as you're used to. 
You'll hear a number of birds and animals in the background. Uh, but rather than hearing this as noise, I'll invite you to imagine as you're listening that you're walking alongside Catherine through this coastal region of Western Sydney, surrounded by green trees and vibrant birds. And you're walking alongside this highly celebrated and brilliantly original thinker, uh, being serenaded not only by birds and wildlife and the kind of general unruly intrusions of the world, but by the way that she, she see these things and, and the way that she shares her experience. And if you see it this way, you might forgive me for the audio quality. Um, you can find links to the show page and more information on Catherine at the website. That's musingmind.org slash podcast. And if you'd like to help the podcast grow, it uh, makes a huge difference if you would take the time to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, which helps me not only reach a, a wider audience, but also entice guests to come on the podcast. And you can also share an episode on social media. Or finally, if you have the means and really want to support the show, you can become a Patreon supporter by offering something like $1 a month. Um, links to all of that are also on the episode page of the website, or you can just reach it at patreon.com slash Oshanjaro. All right, please enjoy my conversation with Katherine Gibson. All right, Katherine Gibson, thank you so much for joining me on the Music Mind podcast today. Oh, I'm I'm very happy to be here. So, there there were a number of works, but but two books in particular uh, that you published under the name J.K. Gibson Graham, which was a conglomeration of of your name and your partner in crime or partner in crimes against capitalism, maybe uh, Julie Graham. And the two of you were exploring. I think the first one, The End of Capitalism, that came out in 1996. Is that correct? That's right. So that book and, and your more recent one in 2006, uh, Post-Capitalist Politics, these were exploring these questions of, of the end of capitalism and what comes next, like far before that was a cool thing to do, right? This kind of came into style recently, but um, you were doing this kind of far beforehand. And reading them together, they, they certainly are explicitly part of the same project, right? They're not two separate, isolated books. They, they very much speak with one another. Mm -hmm. So I thought a good starting point um, would be to ask you, how you describe or gesture towards, you know, what you were up to in those two books, if they're part of this kind of coherent project, how do you begin to try to give a sense of what that project was? Hmm. Yeah, sure. Well, I guess, you know, it's a long time ago now, mm. <laughs> but I feel like I'm still in the same project. And it was, a, it, it, it was and is a project of trying to imagine and enact a different kind of world um, focused on originally uh, the kind of the way in which we imagine economies and therefore perform them. So um, it wasn't so much um, an epochal let's let's now uh, move on to what's next. It was more saying what is stopping us from enacting what's next right next right now. And I guess mm. it was a the critical moment of our work was to say, hey, we're part of a, a movement of intellectuals and activists who are you know, are motivated to think about a more just world and um, to agitate, to bring a different kind of um, economy that's, you know, less exploitative and so on into being. And yet what we're, we're doing all the time is just exposing how capitalism works. Um, and mm. in fact, not only 
are we doing that? But we're actually almost making it work better by the way in which we're theorizing. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're saying we're lining everything up, that everything that happens seems to be mm-hmm. attributed to uh, this thing called capitalism. So that seemed to be a problem, that this critical sensibility that was supposed to be, you know, understanding the world in order to change it, uh, that we felt very much we wanted to be part of, was in fact kind of producing barriers and blockages by its sophistication, its kind of intellectual uh, critical attitude that started to theorise, you know, the restructuring of international capital and how it was enrolling nature and populations Mm -hmm. into its kind of embrace. So this kind of... This, this big narrative that seemed to be galvanising um, intellectuals and intellects was leading to a political dead end, it seemed to us at the time. And so mm-hmm. the idea for us was to say, well, how do we get out of this capitalist space? You know, how do we uh, – and, of course, we can't necessarily think it away. We can't just imagine a different world and it will come into being. But what mm-hmm. sort of thinking tools do we need to start to see – where to start working, um, and what? How can we kind of destabilize this dominance, this hegemony that um, is we're up against? And so, it became a project, a, a thinking project initially um, of kind of deconstructing that dominance, like looking at all the, the tools that post-structuralism and feminism and queer theory was offering us um, to start to say, how do we shake up? Hegemony. How do we see something else here? And then once we see something else, how do we start enacting uh, and strengthening those kind of moments or practices and processes that are animated by different kinds of logics or different ethics um, than those we see marshaled together into this kind of capitalist formation? Yeah, then that was one of the, the really interesting um, elements of your work too, was that what you, what it did not seem like you were doing was saying, we are living inside of capitalism and here's an alternative I'm going to try to convince you of. It was almost like your 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 method was, we are not properly seeing what is actually happening, that almost like the theory is blocking our perception of, of what is actually happening. And, and a lot of the way that I read uh, your work was trying to clarify the situation that we are actually, actually in and show how that process of clarification is itself something that that can open these emancipatory spaces for change by by not only getting lost in our theory, and you talked about the narratives that were sweeping people up, but by just getting onto the ground and looking, well, how does how does daily life and, and reality actually match the theories we've constructed to explain it? Yes, and, and, and to some extent, I guess I wouldn't go down the track that we were saying, this is more real than that. <laughs> it mm. wasn't this idea that somehow, you know, the theorists were missing something and we needed to fill it out in order to get the better picture or the most accurate picture because that seemed to be, that's a kind of reflective vision of theory as if it can ultimately Mm. reflect the world. It was more saying, um, you know, there are multiple ways of conceptualising our world and what, what we're doing with this big theory is being blind to a whole lot of other things that, you know, Indigenous scholars uh, and practitioners understand or people in um, the majority world uh, have theorised or talk about or feminists have drawn attention to. You know, if we actually look at the daily practices of living, uh, so much of our lives are bound up in practices that we can't we can't say are the generation of surplus value for multinational capital. You know, <laughs> so what does that mean for thinking about a different world? I mean, if we look at 
you know, the international fishing industry, for instance, mm-hmm. the vast majority of people are involved in kind of family businesses or cooperatives, um, small-scale fishing, and yet, you know, the industry is dominated, yes, in some ways by international capital, or at least there is that faction in there, but most of the fish that's being fished in the world is, is coming out of dif- a different kind of economic and social relationship. Mm. Now, yeah. what does that mean for thinking through alternatives or different pathways? So it, it wasn't so much as coming up with answers. It certainly wasn't coming up with a kind of utopian vision or even a master plan for the future. It was kind of trying to introduce the idea that inventory and differentiating the world around us could have some purchase on, on trying to free up the idea that there could be different kinds of actions. Hmm. Yeah. You you take a really uh, fascinating and I think unusual approach to talking about post-capitalism and, and, and politics and economics. Um, there's, there's a binary that I think gets in the way of a lot of interesting thinking, and it's one that I think your approach helps offer a way around or, or out of. Um, for example, in mainstream economic thinking, economic analysis today, we tend to take people as they are, right? Which is to say that we assume human beings emerge from the womb as already formed individuals with their own self-reliantly uh, shaped tastes and preferences and ontologies. I, I spoke with Julie Nelson recently, and she called this the mushroom man theory of, of humanity. Right? We just emerge from the ground fully formed. And in uh, in contrast to that perspective, there's there's social theory, right? Which argues that actually individuals are not the rightful first element of analysis that before or behind individuals, there is society into which the individual is born. And this plays a causal role in you know shaping and forming the individual tastes and preferences. And you seem to kind of bring these two together um, in, in a really refreshing way. You seem to admit that both of these are, are relevant influences, right? There is an individual in the society that, that are more in a kind of co-creative process. Um, and this is the vantage point that that I've really been interested in exploring across a, a number of conversations here. Right? How is it that that economic systems, which feel often right so abstracted or so much larger than than what we come into into contact with in our daily lives, and how are these things involved in shaping and forming our individual subjectivities, which which feel like such private domains? And one of the ways that you approach that answer to talk about that that space is not just by the usual kind of social theory view that citizens of capitalism become you know nothing more than appendages of the system that are entirely subsumed by it and, and used as kind of hollow puppets. So I, I wanted to ask you how you look at this kind of really complex interaction where both views are at play, the individual and the society are kind of co-creating one another. And it becomes difficult to know what to make of it and especially how to participate in a process of change if it all feels so jumbled. So how do you see that that relationship? Yeah. Well, I guess the the thing that really um, helped me think through that was the idea of a dissented self, <laughs> you mm. know, um, even when I think, you know, if I think about myself, it's very hard to kind of rest on which of the many subject positions I occupy is the most uh, the most dominant or the uppermost at any moment, you know, whether it's mm-hmm. the subject position of a, as, a, as an academic or as an Australian or as a, as a mother, you know, etc. So I think that kind of um, feminist post-structuralist take on the self as it's self-decentered that uh, can occupy multiple subject positions and is hailed by many different kinds of discourses was one way of 
of shifting from that kind of binarism that you're one or the other. And I mm. guess, you know, the work of Chantal Mouffe and Laclau, uh, Anesta Laclau was really helpful in thinking about the way that that kind of decentered nature of self and selves and communities plays into politics, you know, that you can be hailed in one of those dimensions while still, uh, you know, living many other kinds of dimensions of self. And that is a hopeful thing because there's many ways that one can be addressed, you know, and one can be enrolled in projects to some extent. So that 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 was kind of one way in, and the other, I suppose, was the the idea from Jean Luc Nancy, which who who kind of argues that, you know, we are always um, being in common, like that the the notion of the human being as something that is born into a collectivity is as pertinent as the notion of the being as as a sort of singular thing, and that idea that we share some kind of common being that is not. It doesn't automatically give you an identity, but gives you a, a kind of a responsibility to be always kind of um, negotiating, I suppose, with others is is a very different kind of starting point for thinking about what a society is or, or what a community is. And of course, that work is still, I think, in our in our thinking in the Community Economies Collective has moved on to to thinking about self in relation to earth others as well as human, the human self. So this idea of relationality of, um, of, of decented selves that are also, you know, we are also microbes, we're also non-human, so-called, you know, other kinds of living entities, not only in our mm -hmm. own bodies but in our interaction with us. So again, kind of uh, destabilises that binary that you're talking about and it, it opens up then lots of different imaginaries, I think, for how we can act. Yeah. And this is such a large and, and I think rich terrain, and I think we're going to skate through it a bunch. One of the the tensions or, or dangers even, um, when I think talking about the role of something like self-transformation in relation to economic transformation is to run too close to this kind of neoliberal rhetoric that manages to redirect people's attention away from something like structural change and place it onto individual responsibility. So that, for example, if you're anxious or unhappy with your job, the rhetoric, the rhetoric would say, it's not your job's fault, you should try meditating in the morning or going to therapy, you know, rather than scrutinizing labor conditions. Um, or, you know, or in response to the ecological degradation that is ongoing, the point would be individuals should recycle more rather than organizing to push a carbon tax, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and so I want to draw this tension out a bit in your work because I think you navigate it so so wonderfully. And the, specifically about the role that self-transformation does need to play if we are really you know, to change our broad economic situation. And one of the ways that you framed this in your writing is you wrote, the project of building an alternative economy also involves new practices of the self, producing different economic subjects through a micro-politics or ethics of self-transformation. So to start off, how do you see the dangers, you know, advocating for self-transformation amidst a kind of neoliberal environment that would all too quickly love to kind of appropriate that logic and further displace blame onto individuals um, that very often have kind of structural causality laced into them, right? How do you emphasize the role of self-transformation without letting structural questions and policy questions off the hook? Mm. Yes, well, that is a really tricky tricky question and I think I've, <laughs> I've, I've negotiated it 
through forms of action research, you know, with people. I guess I mm. can talk about it from that perspective um, rather than kind of from a, a grand, you know, top-down kind of view. So the idea of self-transformation for us, or I guess, has been this idea that one isn't locked into a particular identity. And I guess our work was starting off with this idea of economic identity particularly, where, you know, as you as you were mentioning, people are kind of locked into, you know, a worker subject position or a, a capitalist subject position or whatever. And, you know, working in, in communities where those identities as workers, for instance, had been taken away by restructuring or privatisation and then producing unemployment. We were interested in the way in which people wanted to cling on to those identities as, a, as you know, as a sense of self. And so to be tra- to, to kind of think about a different way, f- way forward, we needed to engage with this, dis- this sort of discussion of how do you actually disengage from one particular identity and start to think of all the other identities or subject positions that one is already in, in occupying and actually use them as a starting point for a different kind of action. So that the idea of transformation was more about openness, like opening and and generating a different kind of affect than the kind of victimised affect that I think so many kind of people in the communities that we were working in were feeling, that we couldn't, we can't do anything, we've had this done to us, we just mm. want back what we had, rather than, yes, uh, I'm no longer, uh, you know, a crane driver at a coal mine, but um, I'm also someone who's worked in their community, you know, using my technical skills to, to rig up a... Uh, a community phone system for old people so they can get in touch with each other. Gee, hmm. you know, I'm actually an innovator or, yeah. you know, I'm a grandfather and I'm looking looking after kids, etc. So it, it the self-transformation isn't that kind of wellness. Let's just kind of get into meditate and think our way into, you know, a, a different kind of uh, inner psychosis, sort of psychological <laughs> kind of um, being. It's actually very material. It's like actually let's think of what are the practices and processes that are a part of my life that I could be working with uh, as opposed to clinging on to something that uh, either is gone or is never going to be achieved again or that will be locked into a certain kind of uh, struggle where I'll be always in, always occupying that kind of outraged, victimised kind of position. So I guess, you know, we're, we're kind of, you're right, we're kind of mixing and matching in a way because both of us were very um, affected by the movement's such as you know uh, meditation and and the Buddhist kind of detachment dis- kind of idea, mm-hmm. but we're also you know not thinking. I, mean, I think there's a very kind of uh, dangerous middle class kind of sex, you know view that you can just pick yourself up by your bootstraps and think your way right. into a different way forward. So, I guess the con- the kind of conversations we we're interested in was to help people break down that kind of attachment, that victimised, individualised attachment, even though it was often an attachment to a collective subjectivity, like a working-class subject position, but it actually created a very individualised sense of failure. Um, Mm. And speaking those stories and needing to kind of allow people to grieve the lost identity as part of a process of transformation was very much something we utilised in our action research processes. So... That you know, the transformation isn't about just giving up one identity, but actually exploring the way that one needs to to grieve these things at the same time as being, you know, get getting those glimmers of excitement of actually 
recognizing you could work with other people to do different kinds of things and utilize other talents that you have and a different kind of energy is activated once one starts to see that you have you know strengths and assets and gifts that can be mobilized so these are very kind of pragmatic approaches um, to this question of transformation and we found that they seem to work with people uh, at that level um, how how they could be translated into broader scale is, is another question but that I guess is one way we tried to bring you know the learning that we got from reading you know, whether it was Thich Nhat Hanh or whatever in the Buddhist mm-hmm. tradition to a kind of more sense of people are embedded into structures those structures do lock them into certain kind of identities um, and then you know the, the, the move on to kind of producing systemic change or structural change is to kind of link that into the kind of diversity of economic practices that can work and so starting to think about the role that social enterprise or cooperatives can play in economic livelihoods uh, and why it is that you know what is blocking those things from being supported in regional economies for instance is a way of kind of starting to work on the more material structural side of the economy but you need subjects to be able to f- to push those agendas and without the subjects pushing them <laughs> you know it's very hard to kind of get those things on the on the uh, on the table and you know the, the work has uh, yeah, taken a long time and it, yeah. I think some of the things we were talking about 20 years ago are now much more accepted um, and are very much part of a sense of uh, you know social and, and, and economic change and at the time they were seen as quite outlandish <laughs> just, just yeah. the idea of a community garden seemed weird you know? and now it's ev- they're everywhere you know? right <laughs> it's funny too uh something you said brought back to me there was a a quote i'd snipped down here i didn't know how i was going to fit it in but but you touched right on it one of the the ways that you kind of bring it together this this question of economic transformation and uh, subjectivity or ontology or consciousness is is very much, I think, um, and this is what drew me to it, making sure that that materialism plays a role in our analysis. And I, I know Marx is very near to a lot of your thinking. And I, this is something I experienced myself. I remember, you know, I, I also spent a lot of time in, in the Buddhist scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and also there I found there was, you know, we were so interested in questions of consciousness and we were so devoid of any materialist analysis of how what we're doing on an everyday level might actually participate in the construction of that conscious experience. And, you know, especially in those crowds, like if, if you start going to meditation retreats, it's easy to be blind to, for example, the privileges that self-select for certain types of people to be a part of those communities and to therefore neglect those who can't. Um, so that, that, that drew me a lot into more into economic policy. But the, the, the bit that you wrote that I think shows a lot of how the, the action research you were doing um, was emblematic of this process. You wrote, but what sense is there in denying the ample evidence that people have the capacity to experience extraordinary joy and pleasure in working with each other simply because they are working together? The giddy sensation that one is smaller than what one thought a part of a whole and larger than what one is stripped of individual fetters that one has become folded along with others into a new creature altogether. And so just this, this idea that identity is, is very fluid, very responsive, very adapted, always, always in conversation, almost in a dance with what one is doing on a very material basis, right? I really like the way you brought those into conversation together. 
Yes, and I think, I mean, one of the things that perhaps you would have appreciated from being involved in those kind of Buddhist practices is is that sense of practice, you know, that there is a ritual or there is a repetitiveness to a certain kind of practice, and in that case it's collective, but yes, as you say, it could be a collective of very privileged people. But that aside, there's a sense in which being something different involves practicing it, you know, and, and practice it in multiple ways, like doing it over and over. And and then the, the joy of doing things together is something that I think, yeah, we are touching on in that quote. But the idea that these uh, that there has to be some content to the practice of collectivity that is joyful as, as well as effectual uh, is very important. And I think, you know, I think we were very critical of the kind of practices that a lot of um, left-wing politics or social movements perhaps had had sort of fallen into not not the early days of the women's movement for instance where there was a sense of collective practice and joy in consciousness raising or of the kind of uh, interactions that took place and the kinds of repetitive re-readings and you know, reading groups and all these kinds of think ways of trying to move into a different sensibility that had to be repeated and done together but you know once that became ossified into a certain kind of hierarchy where certain people get to you know be the leaders and others don't get to practice much <laughs> of, the, of, the, of this it, it, you know it, it's a problem so i guess and and i guess i guess we brought that also into thinking about later on in Take Back the Economy, the process of commoning as a kind of something that is involving a community that gets formed in in that process of commoning, of mm. figuring out how to access something or take responsibility for or care for it. And, you know, in terms of the kind of debates that were happening between uh, around privatisation of public goods, you know, we could see that a lot of public goods had been taken over by the state such that the kind of commoning community that initially started those or even set them up for instance community hospitals and things those processes had been lost and in in the bureaucratization of um, state provision the kind of involvement in in that provisioning by individuals as groups and groups had been lost and so that sense of care for those goods and services uh, kind of had been abrogated or or handed over and Mm. that then allowed them to be uh, privatised because we didn't have that same sense of ownership or responsibility. So I think there's something in in this that that comes from, yes, this, this idea that the body has to be involved in doing something <laughs> and the mind. <laughs> and yeah. it's out of that process that, that, that caring and, uh, and also negotiating difference takes place it's Mm. you know that idea that you could be sitting in a meditation hall with people of all different backgrounds or shapes and sizes and feel something collective is an interesting one um yeah and and i think that's partly i guess what a lot of people are lacking and and feeling they aren't connected to others in in certain ways at the moment that that's leading to all sorts of i guess other issues yeah yeah we could. We don't need to get into <laughs> in terms of national politics and so on. Anyway, right, I right. guess that's a um, a kind of a long winded way of saying that this. I think we tried to, even in our action research, um, pay attention to 
process and practice as part of and parcel of what self-transformation and group transformation is about. Yeah. I, I think it's it's really interesting to read claims made by folks like uh, the philosopher Byung-Chul Han, for example, who claims that the entrepreneur of the self yeah, this this kind of contemporary idea is the ultimate neoliberal subject, right? That the person who sees their humanity, conceives of it through an entrepreneurial lens, and thus subordinates all of their time to the you know the project of maximizing the returns on their human capital, is the ultimate expression of this kind of neoliberal subjectivity. Because in this way, you don't need an employer to do the exploiting, right? The neoliberal kind of self entrepreneur auto exploits, as he calls it, and naturally uh, squeezes all their time for productive returns that benefit the accumulation of capital because it's it's ontology that is propelling them to do so. And this makes me think of, of how important it is to differentiate between the kind of self transformation that exists in in maybe what we'll call the productivity space, right? People who are transforming themselves in order to become better economic subjects. Whereas what, what it feels to me like you're playing with here and you're writing is, is, is a deeper form, a deeper way of, of conceiving it where it undermines that kind of very self-concept that conceives of itself as ultimately human capital. It tries to show the, the difference in which one can actually enact different identities um, and, and particularly the way that our environments and, and what we were doing and our practices, the way these all kind of pitch into that process. Um, and, you know, in addition to the, the collective understanding of, of what the self is and the kind of decentered model that you've been talking about, um, d- does it make sense to you to say that another differentiating point would be this kind of ontology of human capital, or maybe a, a more clear way to put it would be in this process of self-transformation, you know, in the ethic of self-transformation that you write about, what are we transforming ourselves for? Mm. Yes, well, that I, you know, when as you were speaking, there were a lot of different thoughts I had there <laughs> because that that image of the entrepreneurial self, to me, you know, uh, attaches most clearly to the kind of small business persona mm. and that is often a persona that's driven by desperation <laughs> it's mm. a, a desperation to survive uh if you know if again if we do the diverse economy perspective you know the informal economy of small business people around the world is is the largest probably group of economic economically active people and yet it's a funny right. you know it's usually uh, a form of entrepreneurialism that barely makes and it makes a living, <laughs> that just mm-hmm, right. ekes out ekes out an existence. Um, and it's funny then that that image becomes centre to you know these very kind of sophisticated economic theories. Uh, when you know if you look at the the large corporations that are making all the money, you know the kind of uh, sensibilities of those directors and uh, others. Are very, uh, they're relying on all sorts of subterfuge and crime and uh, collectivity mm-hmm. and collective silence, <laughs> whether yeah, it's around right. tax returns or whatever, that to mm-hmm. make a living, you know, or to make not more, not a living, but making, you know, making an obscene kind of amount of money. So it's a very interesting kind of mix, this image, this kind of, uh, of entrepreneurialism and individualism that is, um, it's such a, it, it, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's so misleading to so in in a, in a way, and mm-hmm. yet it's such a it's such a uh, 
a foundation of so much economic thinking and, and sense of common sense, you know. Um, because I think, you know, most people are driven by some seeking of comfort or of, of, of living well and um, mm-hmm. what they'll do to achieve that is, is going to be determined by what's available to them. And sometimes that can, you know, can lead to very individualistic behaviour, and sometimes it, le- it leads to a lot of a lot of the kind of small business. And that I've had, you know, observed in many of the countries I've worked in, there's a lot of collectivity that is underpinning that kind of self-interest, whether it's mm-hmm. collectivity around, um, you know, pricing or access or whatever. So it's a, again one of those very false dichotomies I think in economic thinking this idea of of the individual and self-interest and needs to be kind of I think we need to to be suspicious of it in so many ways and whenever I hear the term human capital I always cringe because I I just hate the way the world is is by certain economists is kind of reduced to something capital physical capital social capital human capital it just seems such a narrow and um you know it's just a very denuded language i think but i don't think i've answered your question possibly (laughs) (laughs) well i rambled enough for the the question the answer was why i'm reacting to the terminologies uh rather than the actual meat of the question, uh, but you're asking what do, what do we transform for, and or right. what are we transforming? And I think that changes, you know. I think, and it changes as one's perception changes and is increased. You know, I just, I just last night I was watching a, a program that fo- featured an, an Australian farmer who was a very good farmer for many years, for decades, but that meant using all the kind of scientific models of farming that ignored the fact that there was a community living in the soil mm. that he was killing. <laughs> right. And uh, after many droughts, he finally came to the realisation that he had to allow the soil community to thrive if he was going to live on this landscape and actually allow other animals to live on it too. So, you mm. know, in terms of his own family livelihood it shifted from a very ex- what we would now see as a very extractivist form of agriculture to now what's called regenerative agriculture where his transformation his, his mental health has changed his family is still living well or perhaps living better than they did before but he's also encouraging the life of uh, the microbial beings in the soil that are, are helping you know nourish the vegetation and the animals that he's he's growing on that land. So, I think you know there was a major shift there, and he, and and I think that can happen for many people that the the idea of what we live for shifts as I guess one's understanding shifts, and I guess that is again a hopeful thing for a scholar who is involved in <laughs> in the realm of ideas that, that there there can be some impact when you see the world differently. You do you can act and you appreciate different actors uh, and your relationship to them in a different way. So Mm. I think, you know, all of us have access to those kinds of um, transformations, really. The question is, you know, do they lead to, you know, the flourishing of multiple communities rather than just one's own? Yeah, absolutely. 
You, uh, so you bring in a quote in a, a number of works from Francisco Varela, right? The biologist and philosopher and among other things responsible for kind of a, a new school of cognitive science, the inactivist domain that, that gets into how the brain and the mind and the world are all entangled. And, but you, to, to introduce that, you used a quote of his that was so succinct and I think lays out a lot of, of what we've been dancing around here. Um, the, the Varela quote was, if you want to change yourself, change your environment. If you want to change the world, change yourself. So just to, to flesh that out, right? The first cause in this chain is changing the environment, which then changes yourself, which then changes the world. And yeah, I, I want to zoom in on this framing and specifically that link between changing yourself and changing the world. Mm. And to bring in a concept from your writing that I loved was this, this concept of ontological reframing. Um, which is very much, I think, a label put to something that you've already mentioned in a number of different perspectives here. Um, and this is, of course, you know, very related to Varela's idea of how changing yourself changes the world. And it ontological reframing feels, um, especially in your context, inherently uh, political, right? That cultivating these new ontologies are not individual kind of spiritual acts alone, that new ways of, of being in and experiencing the world, that these are actually radical and thoroughly political acts. Um, so I wanted to ask you to expand on this a bit and maybe to start uh, for anyone who isn't familiar, and it would certainly help me too, just to, to define ontology. Let's begin there with the big, big chestnut. And then to, to help us understand ontological reframing and particularly how that is related to a, a process of politics and economics. Mm. Well, you know, I'm not a philosopher, so I probably... <laughs> we'll go with the easy, quick, easy version. <laughs> For me, ontology was what is, and then epistemology was how we know about it, you know, yes. very simply. <laughs> and, That'll do. Uh, so ontological reframing is about reframing what is, in a way. And I guess the the fact is that, you know, we're often being told what is or what the bottom line is, for instance, and most... Uh, importantly, we're being told all the time uh, what the economy is and what it needs, you know, and that's where mm -hmm. we started to rail against this idea of, of ontological realism, you know, this idea that there was a real and it's out there and you can stub your toe on it and it talks about, you know, needing to, uh, you know, put investment here, not here, otherwise the economy will die or whatever. And so I guess, you know, with the influence of all sorts of thinkers like Foucault who taught us about how it is that something becomes normalised, you know, how is it that an idea of an economy was made and at what time and in, in what, in, in, through what kind of mechanisms, um, one starts to say, well, if, if, if this idea of an economy that functions like an organism or a machine and needs, has these certain needs or a national economy that was born of a certain kind of ideology or, or, or theory, it, it becomes a, a framing then that constrains action and constrains what we can imagine. You know, we need to do work at showing how those things have been made and therefore how they could be made differently. So ontology and our understanding of what is is very much in a way socially constructed but it's not just a set of ideas it's a set of ideas that get embedded in technologies representations in metrics in all sorts of things that be, that are material that are durable that give those ideas a life and makes them into the toe stubbing things that you know <laughs> they are said to be so there's a kind of interesting interaction here between the kind of the idea and the material and uh, that kind of 
that the friction that happens there is something that uh, can be worked with, I think, in terms of a reframing because, you know, once we uh, start to imagine or, or see the economy as, as heterogeneous, for instance, uh, we start to measure what uh, women's work looks like and, and the number of hours that go into caring labour or unpaid labour that are equal to, if not more, than the amount of hours that go into, go into paid labour and keep a society mm-hmm. afloat. That becomes a different metric that um, and a different conceptualisation of an economy, which you know, still hasn't shifted much in terms of economic policy. Um, you know, in our kind of COVID recovery in Australia, right. we're, we're still talking about putting lots of investment into construction so that the boys will get jobs, but no mm. investment into all the caring professions where women are working, for instance. Right. And yet they will employ more people and produce more well-being for more families. So, you know, it's a slow process. But but this idea of reframing is is crucially important and it, it can't be left at at the ideas level. It can't be left there. It has to be connected into all the kind of mechanics and material entities that are tied into that to those sets of ideas. And so I'm, you know, very interested in producing different metrics, different kinds of economic arrangements, different laws, you know, that will support things like cooperatives, um, all the kinds of uh, infrastructure in a way that um, has become part of one set of norms. Um, but uh, we, we, you know, we need to diversify the kind of infrastructure, social infrastructures, so that different kinds of framings of what is uh, can coexist and perhaps even start to replace some of the others that have been so damaging to to our world. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you go on to to cite a, a series of essays by Varela where he he outlines kind of the, you know the two classic different traditions that are concerned with uh, the pragmatics of human transformation. He talks about the western tradition of psychoanalysis and then the eastern teaching traditions. And and you go on to write that the process of becoming a different economic subject is not an easy or sudden one. It is not so much about seeing and knowing as it is about feeling and doing, as you've been saying. And this is you know just another angle on talking about post-capitalism in a phenomenological sense, right? That it involves feeling and doing more than knowing. That it's it's an embodied act more than a cognitive one. That you you can't learn about post-capitalism or enact it in the way that you can memorize multiplication charts, for example, right? It's a sensory experience and, and reconfiguration. Mm. And you know, contemplative practice and various forms of meditation and prayer, maybe even psychedelics and other forms of ritual, you know, all of these things that um, we might think about that occasion, you know, new encounters with how we experience and understand ourselves, new configurations of consciousness that might reveal, you know, possibilities we'd never felt before about, uh, as you mentioned, once you decenter the self, then it can kind of move around and see what other centers there are. Um, but I, beyond these kind of you know, ideas of meditation, a lot of, of what you recounted in your book is when you went into particular communities and went through this process with people. And so I wanted to ask you if there were any practices or kind of methods of maybe not precipitating, or maybe precipitating these encounters, right? Because what you did not write about was you went into some kind of, you know, a uh, small rural town that was devastated by job loss and told them all to meditate. <laughs> this is not where we were at. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you about the methodology and the practices that you used that you saw 
that might have occasioned these kinds of moments of reframing where people came to see themselves differently. You mentioned the farmer, for example, and his his experience with the soil. Is there anything like that that pops up to show the reframing in action? Well, I think, I mean, one of the techniques we've used, I, I mentioned it already, is this idea of um, assets versus needs mapping. And hmm. with a group of people um, who feel they're hardly done by, by, you know, the world or by economic development or by their situation in a rural backwater or in a, in a, in a region that's just uh, had lots of companies close or something. Um, you know, there's a sense, often a very strong sense of the problems. You know, if you sit with a group mm-hmm. of people and ask them, you know, what's top of their minds and they'll often bring up all the problems that are that they're facing um, yeah. and the needs that they have and that they want someone else to come in and um, and fix them up. And usually, you know, as, an, as, as researchers, you're seen as an outsider, a foreigner, you've obviously got money, you've got something you're going to be able to do for me. <laughs> so mm. put it on the table. Whereas if, if it's in a kind of working class community in Australia, you're just seen as a... a you know, as someone to be derided and, you know, you come in here and treat us like lab rats all the time kind of thing. So yeah. there's that whole of hostility often to um, to researchers and to this kind of process. And that's something that has to be kind of put out there. And so the, the process we've used is is one where that we, we, we start off with mapping all those kinds of feelings and um, needs and problems and so on and then just ask people to come with you to shift perspective for a minute and say well let's just look at on another the other side of things let's look at what we have at hand you know whether it's throughout the environment we have the kind of social skills the connections we have etc and do the brainstorm around assets um, and kind of capabilities I suppose mm-hmm. and what's interesting is as opposed to often what happens with these kinds of exercises where people do these SWOT analysis, these strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, they put everything on the same sheet and mm. put them into these four quadrants. And what always happens is the threats and weaknesses start to outweigh the strengths and opportunities. And what's, I think, brilliant about this method that Kretzmann and Mike McKnight developed is that they do it in sequence. So you get the needs and problems out there and people get to vent and, you know, feel bad and, and show how bad they are. Um, and then you should just say, just just come with me, shift a little bit and let's start looking mm. at these other things. Of course, what happens is a different kind of affect arises in, and the, con- the collective often starts to feed off each other and think about other things and stories come out, etc. And the end point is a very different sensibility that then can be used to say, well, how do we mobilise some of these things to address some of the problems that you've mentioned back here? You know, it Mm. just, it is a kind of, uh, it's it's using inventory, which I think can be, you know, it's a funny little thing, just, you know, making lists and and, and inventorying something, but, you know, it is a way of getting stuff out there. But it's also a way of shifting one's relationship to the world. And so that's just one technique that I think we've used that is not yeah. about sitting and meditating, but it has some similarities to yeah. the kind of uh, meditative practice of abandoning the negative thoughts or just letting them sit there and start mm. to allow the positive feelings arise, you know, the feelings of love, the feelings of connection, etc. So, you know, it's a very different kind of take on it, but it's it's got a similar structure in some ways. Um and that, yeah. of course, you know, can't be left at that point. But it is something that then 
produces those kind of excitements. And often out of that, you'll find people, not all of the group, but some people who will be willing to say, yeah, let's start going from there and and imagining what we could do, you know, having a kind of um, more of a brainstorm of what, how can we build on that and mobilise those assets and what does that mean? Right. <laughs> yeah, of course. It, and, you know, it's interesting too to kind of uh, juxtapose this approach of, of going into communities, engaging people, having them participate in this process with uh, an- another dimension that I've looked at a lot on the podcast and elsewhere are kind of national scale economic policies, things like uh, basic income or universal health care. And on one hand, part of the skepticism you encounter in in that space discussing those ideas, you know, is this idea of uh, framing it as a handout, right? This is not kind of a participatory approach to helping people who are in places where maybe they're they're afflicted in, in certain ways. This is just you know giving them something and and uh, leaving the kind of what might, they might call the motivational problem unaddressed. Mm. Whereas. To, to to use your language here, the reframing that I like to offer in that case um, is to imagine, for example, let's take a hypothetical uh, United States. 2022, we have universal health care, we have basic income, we have wages or, or just general access to resources um, that are such that people aren't quite so imposed upon by economic necessity that, you know, a space that opens up is is what people do as economic precarity relents, you know, only marginally and, and softens its imposition, there's a kind of optionality that that opens up a space to, to take a little wider action um, and maybe shift more of the center of gravity of our lives into these more exploratory spaces where, you know, economic necessity has vacated and, and left this opening. And what I think is most interesting is to frame certain policies as, maybe as Kickstarters, as matches, as things that can help ignite the process that I think you're pointing to here, that just because I think it's absolutely correct to focus on a participatory process where people enact kind of their own situation does not mean that's a, a rationalization or an excuse to therefore do nothing to change the otherwise you know existing uh, environment. But I, I wonder how you see this kind of role of policy in that vein, national scale policy. Are there Are there policies that are important to you in terms of kind of cultivating environments that help people engage in these processes? Are there any that that you find very important in in kind of changing our environments in that kind of Raelian sense to help us kind of then look at changing ourselves? Well, I think I think national level policies are incredibly important in thinking about supporting livelihoods and supporting a kind of diverse economy. And we can see how different in different societies those national policies are in terms of being able to allow for a certain kind of uh, a certain kind of care for the other that um, you know if you just think about some of the Nordic societies where there is still an ethos uh, that the state might look after um, mm-hmm. the poorest uh, or that there might be you know, health care as a, as a human right you know, it's a very different kind of world. Uh, I just, I had the chance of staying in Aarhus for a number of months mm. in, um, in Denmark and I was just amazed to see young mothers out with their prams and their children on the streets uh, and they'd meet for a coffee and leave the pram and the baby on the street and go into the wow. cafe. 
<laughs> and have a chat. You know? My American um, body is cringing. You know, I'm, exactly, I'm already nervous. Exactly. Exactly. Now, isn't that amazing? Like that is yeah. a sense of what is possible in a society where even as a person who was living there for a few months, I had a welcome pack from the local municipality with free wow. tickets to all the cultural institutions saying, <laughs> you know, if I wanted to, if I was living here longer, I could go to Danish language classes, etc. Now, of course, you know, there's all sorts of things happening in Denmark that are eroding those kinds of thing, practices, but all those policies. But it was just so different. And I think, Again, in Australia, you know, we have a form of universal health care that is providing a basic level of support. You know, it is, it is crucially important. Now, why it is that in certain societies the, the, the idea of it seems so anathema is, is pretty hard for me to, to understand. But yeah. I think, you know, when it comes to questions of something like a basic income payment, again, you know, it's a very interesting kind of question. We were involved in, in talking to James Ferguson about this, and he's been writing about the idea of a, a basic income grant that's been mm. you know, introduced in many of the um, African, Southern African countries where, you know, so many young people will never get access to a paid job. And, you know, it's clear that some kind of income payment will then allow people to complete an education or maybe start a small business or whatever. It, it, it's, an, it's an investment in people to do lots of things, to be carers, you know, not yeah. just to sit around and be bludgers and to sit around and just be handout, have handouts. But the sense in which um, the way in which a kind of economic discourse of meanness has taken over to think that if you give someone money, they'll just sit there and do nothing that, with no respect or, or feeling that there might be something creative that people could do, something they would like to do to contribute to their communities it's, it, it is such a, a demeaning kind of vision of human possibility. And I think, you know, through the COVID crisis here, we've seen all sorts of the flourishing of community connections that could well continue if people weren't working so, so long to get their money for their mortgages and so on. You know, in Australia, we had, yeah. we had won the 35-hour week in the 70s and it's been eroded ever since. Really? So wow. people are working longer and longer than they ever did and it's meaning the undermining of all the kind of community connections that people once got some value and meaning out of. So the idea of trying to introduce some sort of basic income payment I think is, is still a really interesting policy to be fought around and just we've had through this COVID crisis a, a doubling of the, the dole payment which has been called yeah. a job seeker payment and also a payment out to businesses that have lost business, a job keeper payment to people. And, you know, mm. there's been incredible stories of single parent families where suddenly the parents are allowed are able to have three meals a day rather than just two. Or right. finally, you know, kids are, are able to have, you know, salad on their, for their sandwiches rather than, you know, <laughs> crap cheap food. So, right. you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a no-brainer that the kind of supporting people with a basic income payment has so many community and social and health benefits that I think it's something that needs to be still fought for. Of course, how to operationalise it, how to pay for it, whether it should be universal or whether it should be targeted, these are all right. questions that need to be um, discussed in every context and I'm very interested in these issues. And But I'm particularly interested in from, a, from the point of view of a diverse economy. If we start from the idea that people are involved in multiple economic practices and processes, all of which create well-being, 
only one of which is paid work, <laughs> then yeah, right. the idea that they might be supported to do more of those other kinds of work, other kinds of labouring, caring, reciprocal exchange, you know, supporting, etc., I think is it, it gives a different kind of take on what the basic income can enable. Uh, at the moment, we've got this sort of it's it's colonised in this kind of tunnel vision that if you give money to people, they'll sit around and do nothing. And I think you know that needs to be countered by probably more empirical research into what people mm. are actually doing. <laughs> Right, which which is all actually pretty decisive and singular against that view. Um, yes, it, it all very exactly. much, yeah, it, it's exactly. pretty clear actually. Yes, and you know, exactly. it's funny. I think one of the most interesting uh, elements on that debate. So whether you conceive of it as a universal basic income or a negative income tax, which is targeted, in either way, you're creating an, an income floor in the economy, right? Yes. And let's say hypothetically, you set it at. So I'll talk in, in the U.S. context, thirteen thousand, which is just rounded up from the poverty level. Some of, of the kind of greatest fears of many people of this kind of system is that people would game it and uh, do nothing else, like you say, but just live off of $13,000 a year. Now, first, you know, just, just wow. really thinking about what that would mean, um, you know, the, the kind of lifestyle you can afford off 13 k is very um, full of nuances and, and challenges that I can hardly imagine many people choosing. But... If anyone does, if anyone does decide it is worth it for them to figure out a way to survive on $13,000 a year, that's where I'd be most interested because if they do so, that means there's something that is so important to them that they would rather do with their time than mm. layer more income onto that, that I think that you you would say that these people, whether it's going to be artists, whether it's someone who is just absolutely fascinated with birds and decides to you know drive a bicycle across a landscape and do nothing but bird watch, whatever it is. To me, anyone who is willing to go that far is exactly like the, the most creative space that that kind of thing opens up. Exactly, exactly. You know? and, and just to see, yes, what they would be doing, all the ways in which they would be garnering value from a whole range of non-commercial exactly. kind of um, sources is incredible. And, you know, if we, you know, we face up to the fact that we are consuming this world at, at a rate that is just obnoxious, you know, and, and can't be sustained – Surely, moving towards a less consumptive profile <laughs> lifestyle is a good thing. Uh, this is what seems to be so upsetting when people keep saying we wanted to bounce, we want to bounce back to normal, we want to get back to what it was like before. Now, after yeah. you know, after the COVID downturn, but why? The whole point of of what's going on at the moment is we have to shift and downsize and downshift and and reduce our our ecological footprint. So, it's those people that can do that that need to be the heroes, really, I think. Um, very hard to do it in, in, the, in our society where the housing costs are so high and there's so yeah. little social housing and so on. But these are the questions, I think, that are really important. What is it that we would need to provide for people and to enable them to, to downshift, downsize, work less in certain kinds of work and work more in other kinds of um, labouring that's going to bring joy, ecological care, social care and so on and why isn't that a priority <laughs> yeah us? right yeah. yeah 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 you so you've written on that note you've written about something that uh the french philosopher andre gores who's been incredibly formative for me uh called the freedom to choose restraint right playing mm -hmm. off of milton friedman and 
you did that in the context of citing, I think it was a particular factory that was cooperatively owned by its workers. And they voluntarily decided to cut back on their wages in order to accumulate a surplus that they would then reinvest into the business. And you know that kind of capital reinvestment is what can lead to, for example, higher pro- productivity rates that allow people the option to cash it in as a shorter working week, for example, if they decide to collectively value that. Um, but I really like this this kind of Gorsian frame of the freedom to choose restraint, and especially if we you know adopt the lens that uh, we've gone through centuries of rapid production and, and potentially entered a space of now we are as you mentioned overproducing, overconsuming, and we're at that kind of phase where we need to allow ourselves to scale back and find maturity in our system. And it's interesting because you can see this in biological systems everywhere, right? They begin with phases of rapid expansion, and then they reach this kind of plateau of maturity. And it might not be perfect steady state, there might still be growth, but far, far less. Um, The human body, for example, um, but we also see this in plant and animal systems. So do you see this kind of this Gorsian frame, this idea of, of building in the freedom to choose restraint and, and, you know, this is an idea. What this means in practice, I, I can only imagine, is a set of policies and also a set of maybe on the ground uh, practices of ontological reframing that help us see, for example, like we were just talking about, uh, spending less as a form of progress as opposed to regression. But, but how do you see this idea working in the, the freedom to choose restraint? Well, at the moment, I think, you know, it's really only up to the poor and the artists <laughs> and they don't necessarily see it as a freedom and in fact you know they're not supported to see it as to to make it into a positive potentially um but uh because i think there is not very many models of how to do this at a more kind of um, institutionalized way or organized mm-hmm. way um certainly one could see that worker-owned cooperatives are a, f- a form of that. I think that's perhaps what you were referring to in, mm-hmm. in the book. We talk about, we, we do an analysis of the Mondragon cooperatives, but there's a lot of other now, uh, a lot of other uh, groups that are trying to establish worker-owned cooperatives where the, you know, there's, there is perhaps restraint on the wages that are being paid to the cooperative, to cooperator in order to make the business work or, or in order to be able to generate a surplus that could be then um, ex- distributed more widely to a community, for instance, outside mm-hmm. of that business. So, you know, there are, and those, those kind of businesses are set up around a sharing of ownership, which is um, allowing then for a kind of an equitable distribution of, of wealth. And perhaps in the case of Mondragon, there's also a lot of community services that support people in those cooperatives, you know, community health and social security, et cetera, so that the livelihoods that you lead don't have to be as, as focused on making more to, in order to live. But, you know, that, you know that is, that's a kind of set where there's a sort of a, an ownership structure and an inf- institutional kind of backup that allows for that freedom and it is a freedom that uh, I think the younger generations in, in the Basque region who are born into that perhaps don't even realise, you know, that, that, and this is mm. something that I think is going to be an issue for, for the reproduction of that kind of that model. But many other, com- other communities, even in the US, are, are interested in trying to produce or you know, grow these kinds of um, economic institutions that will allow for a greater equity of, of distribution of wealth. And I think 
social enterprises are also doing this, where the, the agenda is to employ people to have a livable wage and to have some productive and useful contribution to society, but they're not focused on you know, massive profit making. So, you know, I think we need to take it out of that idea of the individual's right to choose this to see how there might be more ways to support this kind of um, livelihood. I remember me- meeting someone in the Mondragon Cooperative when I was visiting it and she was the person that um, did the work plan for the factory and she she was also a local councillor so she put quite a lot of effort into that kind of mm. civic responsibility and she was able to work whenever she liked so she could go in during the weekend and figure out the work plan wow. for, for the factory because, you know, it was up to her. She was an owner of that company. She could... She had response. She obviously took responsibility for it working, but she could make it work for her, uh, so that she could also free up time to do other things in the local yeah. council. So that that there is a way in which allowing people to have greater responsibility in their workplaces, and I think this is something that's interesting that's been discovered through the COVID crisis. So many people have worked at worked at home, and productivity hasn't gone down, and so so many mm. big businesses are now saying, well, actually. This is working fine. (laughs) You know, people can work at home. They're not like skiving off. They're actually doing their work, but they're also probably doing it more efficiently. They're not spending three hours commuting. Do Mm. we need these huge office blocks anymore? You know, so there's a way in which there are some interesting shifts happening in perspective and people are feeling freer. A lot of men are having a lot more time around their kids than they've ever been able to have because of this lockdown. You know, whether we can take these insights and start to work with them to make a different kind of uh, society, a different kind of work structure. You know, this is the challenge and this is something some of us in the Community Economies Collective have been trying to, to work on. What is it that's that's occurred in this funny kind of moment of pause? Uh, what are the kind of experiments that have happened that we might like to see embedded in the future uh, because of some benefit that they're producing for uh, for well-being or for ecological care or whatever. But I think, you know, I think Gortz was, was absolutely right and it's it seems so antithetical when he wrote it that people mm. even desire that, you know. And work is a funny word. It's got, it's got kind of mm. taken over by a certain kind of conception and yet, you know, people do like to do things. <laughs> yeah. One, uh, well, actually, yeah, you know, on that, one of my favorite distinctions has been, I think it was Hannah Arendt's who was heavily cited in Gortz's book about the distinction yeah. between labor and work, mm. right? And that, you know, work is this wonderful thing. It's one of the most, you know, creative, uh, deep playful human capacities and labor is just the repetitive acts we do to survive and i i always think about basic income in the context of enabling people to do more work and less labor Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. but one uh one criticism that that your work has received and that you have engaged with uh, it's pretty common on the left today i think is this criticism of scale right a lot of your research that operates under the header of post-capitalism is focused in particular communities and localities and as the criticism goes you know you can't transform such a hegemonic system with such deep concentrations of power by focusing on local change you know instead you need to go all the way up to the top of the power hierarchy or down into the base layers of incentives that undergird the system and only then when your work operates at that scale of the universal of the system at large is it considered you know structurally transformative And in response to this, you've written about something called place-based globalism, and you used the feminist movement as an example of how place-based globalism has already proven that it can work and been deeply transformative. So I wanted to ask you to elaborate on on place-based globalism and 
what the feminist movement can show us in regards of, of how we can use it today? Yeah, I think the, the idea of place-based globalism is that everywhere, in every world, in every place, there are women and women are transforming their lives. And that is a global movement at some level. It's a, it is at a global scale, if we want to use mm-hmm. that, that, that sort of spatial spread kind of idea. So, you know, we're very hung up with this idea of hierarchy when it comes to scale. And, um, and I guess we've been interested in how you know, the local is ubiquitous. And if you have something that's ubiquitous, it has power across across the world. And and yet it's, you know, it, it is an issue of how that is mobilised. And, uh, I mean, clearly feminism ended up using various kinds of mobilising tools, and including getting women into governments, um, you know, mm-hmm. to Supreme Courts, <laughs> um, <laughs> into legislation, you know, one of the people that instituted our um, Sex Discrimination Act and Equal, equal um, Access and so on just died in Australia, Susan Ryan, mm. a really wonderful person, kind of as this, of the, almost like our uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But, um, you know, so that we're feminists used all the mechanisms of kind of mainstream government I think to also institute some of the the gains or some of the changes that they wanted to see but and this is an ongoing process it's not going to stop it's it's not like it's all been attained in any way that the the, the feminist project of transformation is ongoing and it still has to go on at the local level as well and that's just as important if not more I think but you know just taking it into the kind of economic realm I'm interested in the way in which so much of the um, the kind of economic practices that you know do produce livelihoods that are non-capitalist are again across the world they're everywhere <laughs> and making them more visible to us is is a step towards giving them more legitimacy and more ability to speak back to different kinds of processes I mean I've done some work over the many years in Asia and very I'm very interested in the ways in which communities have you know for many generations worked with major climatic differences like the monsoon worked with forms of reciprocal labor practices and so on and some of these many of these things are still active and they're um, they're all over the place and and they were active in Europe until quite recently as well so the, we have resources to be working with here that are, are forms of, of of local practices, but they're actually of global spread, and they uh, and they're not they haven't died off. Uh, they they're still around, and they can be mobilised in new ways to think about how we live in a climate changed world, how we care for each other, and so on. Now, how to get those those practices recognised, and I guess legislated for or supported is is the challenge and i think feminism has given us some kind of guidelines for that first is to is to get the metrics to get the visibility of things like in national censuses caring labor Mm -hmm. and secondly is to start to see how these practices can be supported in different kinds of um, ways and used in in moments of crisis when it comes to things like disaster recovery and so on so it's a grassroots kind of <laughs> approach to thinking about social change. Uh, it's not something that is uh, that has that kind of uh, revolutionary kind of uh, temporality. This idea that you can, you know, have quantitative that'll move to qualitative change within a 
within a decade or so. It's very much a slow burn kind of approach to 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 change. Um, but I think it needs it needs to be explored more and perhaps you know brainstorm more. More there needs to be more effort given to this kind of approach because it seems that the you know the attempts to try and command the heights of power and government and so on aren't working that well at the moment <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and need some support <laughs> in new ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe last question here before I, I let you go. If if anyone wants to dig further into these ideas and specifically into this kind of space of post-capitalism blended with subjectivity, with ontology, with consciousness – what what reading or what authors, what books have been helpful for you in really coming to think about this process? And, and the caveat I want to add and that I think we've talked about throughout this conversation is that books alone will never be enough, right? There's, there's practice beyond reading and, and theorizing, but books can themselves be a kind of an active process if you, if you read them in a particular way. So what reading has been really formative for you in the space? Mm. Well, there's things that I think have been quite formative in the past and when we were writing the, the books that you mentioned at the beginning. Well, obviously Marx's work was, was very informative to us, uh, but a kind of more anti-essentialist take on Marxian theory that was developed by Rick Wolfe and Steve Resnick in the mm. University of Massachusetts was very um, informative. And in terms of, uh, I guess, feminism, I think some of the post-structuralist feminist work of French theorists, Irigare, and uh, other interpreters of their work, like Elizabeth um, Gross's work, has been important. And, of course, queer theory were very influenced by Eve Kosofsky-Sedgwick, her work on um, queer theory. And I guess in terms of politics, um, William Connolly's work has been always very inspiring to us because he is one of those people that's interested in this intersection of the mind and micropolitics and mm. major political movements. And his work is always kind of pushing us to um, think in that way. I think in terms of, um, you know, our turn towards a more, a more than human approach to thinking of the subject, the work of environmental humanities scholars like um, the eco-philosopher Val Plumwood and the anthropologist Deborah Bird-Rose have also been very um, helpful in trying to see the connections between our rethinking of economy and their kind of rethinking of ecology. And and, and a number of anthropologists, of course, have, have also been inf influential in our thinking. Um, Stephen yeah. Guterman's work in particular was really helpful in thinking about the commons. And, and, and all, you know, he has done a lot of kind of rethinking of economic theory from an anthropological point of view. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, there are some of the the thinkers whose work has influenced us, and um, and there'll be more. <laughs> <laughs> it's ongoing. Yes. Yeah, it's a great syllabus. Yes. And you know, it's funny. I know I said that was my last question, but you one of the things that that really um, going over your work did for me, and especially your chapters on an economy of difference, which we didn't touch on explicitly here, but you mentioned yeah. I, I, previously. I've kind of taken for granted. Uh, you know, Mark Fisher's notion of capitalist realism, which I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, this idea that we are neoliberal capitalism has progressed in such a way that it renders us incapable of even imagining alternatives to it. And you're writing on, on economies of difference, 
went in the complete opposite direction. And it said, not only you, you actually different perspective, maybe we're incapable of imagining alternatives, but the, the fact is that we are always participating in them and we just might not realize it like on a, on a daily granular level, the way we interact with our families, our friends are very often communist as opposed to kind of capitalistic in their, in their modes of, of relations. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really interesting to take, take a second to think about all of the different ways in which we act and relate with one another that we do not characterize or label as as anything other than you know participating in the capitalist society but when you look at it from an actual kind of um, analytical perspective you see that in in many ways right we are sometimes we're communists sometimes we're anarchists sometimes we're this sometimes we're that and sh- and the way that you showed how all of these modes of production are simultaneous and ongoing and contingent on one another so capitalist mode of production might be the dominant mode of production it might be you know the most emphasized but to show that they are contingent and always kind of interwoven really really opens up the spaces that we can already lean into that we already have to to begin this process of ontological reframing and lean into kind of different different modes of conceiving ourselves and our relation to to experience so i, I really appreciated reading that and I, I really appreciated uh the conversation today thank you so much for for taking the time well thanks very much Ocean. i enjoyed the conversation too okay i hope you uh enjoyed that stroll through the wilderness alongside Catherine as much as i did if you would like to check out more of her work, I have links to her books and other interviews that she has done up on the episode page, which you can find by going to musingmind.org podcast and clicking on Katherine Gibson. If you want to stay up to date with the podcast and new episodes, you can sign up for the newsletter, which is also on the website. There's a tab up top that says newsletter. I usually send out about one or two a month and it includes new podcasts, new essays, and, and the like. And if you'd like to get in touch, I am active on Twitter, uh, Oshan Jaro, or you can contact me through the website. I am always happy to hear from people and what they're thinking about the episodes or whatever else. And um, that's all I've got. Thanks a lot. No, I'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.